Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Joe Vigor, Assistant Director of Leadership and Organisational Development, and your host for this episode. Today, we're exploring the lived experience of unpaid carers, the role they play in the health and care system, and our society more broadly. You'll hear from two wonderful people, Karen and Yvette Lewis, as they share their story with us. And later in the episode, I speak to Deborah Fenney, a fellow in our policy department who's been working on an upcoming report, Caring in a Complex World, Perspectives from Unpaid Carers and the Organisations that Support Them. Karen and Yvette, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Just to start us off, would you mind just introducing yourselves? And Karen saying a little bit about your experience of providing care to Yvette and Yvette, your experience of receiving care. Well, I've been caring for Yvette since we met, really, in 2004. Yeah, well, since we got together. Well, We've, not since. Not, not since, really, because it was only when we started living together that I took on yeah. the role of a carer, really. Yeah. I'd never had that role before, um, so it was quite um, an interesting transition because I was working for a little while at the time. Um, I was in a full-time job, so I was, you know, sort of out from nine till five or six and then coming home. Um, I'd come home at lunchtime and things like that to make sure that Yvette had got something to eat and drink and that she'd got a medication and stuff. But then through... Um, circumstances where I was working, eventually decided I'd give up work and become a full-time carer. Uh, so I did that in 2008. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer, cancer. in 2009, 10? Somewhere, like somewhere like that. So Yvette became my carer, effectively, while I was going through all of that treatment. And that was uh, sort of a bit of a... An odd one, really, wasn't it? Because mm. we were kept well, we were caring for one another, really, and we've carried on doing that really all the time, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, it works well, we work well together. I mean, I look after all of the sort of house things like the washing and the cooking and the shopping and the finances because Yvette's mental health can be very much up and down, and dealing with things like that, you don't really like no. to do. So I tend to, and I'm a very organised person anyway, so I do tend to take a bit of control in some areas. Um, so I look after all of that really, as well as just taking care of Yvette and helping her on a on a you know a daily basis with bathing and medication and getting you in, up and out of bed and, and stuff like that really, and and feeding you and making sure you've got drinks and. Not, really, not physically feeding Not me. physically feeding <laughs> yeah. me, no, but making sure that she's got food. I hasten to add, she was a lot smaller when I met her, but I fed her up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving the humour. I'm loving the humour. <laughs> um, what can I say? I was a lonely, disabled person, struggling, fighting the system because I was just having brick was because I was in an age gap that wouldn't get help, you know, a grey area. So it was nice to have Karen when we met, choose a 
loving and caring person and we got on and she just look look after me basically <laughs> you know and makes my life a lot better the way that you've just portrayed each other there is this this fantastic heartwarming partnership with a huge amount of love and a huge amount of humanity going through that i mean just i've just had a bit of an emotional reaction to that actually as you were <laughs> talking you. it's lovely to be talking to you both and and to hear what's been going on for you i mean from your points of view what is a typical day like what does it actually feel like to be a carer and then you've had somebody who's cared for on that what does that day-to-day look like and feel like well it could start at two o'clock in the morning when I start coming out out of sleep my pain kicks in so you usually help me get up Mm. out of bed well actually first thing I have to do is wake Karen up (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah I have a um sleep apnea machine so Karen helps to put that to one side for me and put it in the cleaning machine then she helps me out out of bed then she gets me in my um, lounge wear (laughs) and um, then I hurry to the loo and as I'm doing that she's waiting just to make sure I'm okay and then she'll follow me downstairs and she'll... On your stair lift. Yeah, because I'm on a stair lift. Right, OK. She helps me over to my recliner chair and then you make me a hot drink mm-hmm. and make sure I've got a can and says to me, are you all right? And I go, yeah. So she'll either read next to me in her recliner chair and fall asleep <laughs> Or she might turn round when she realises that I'm comfortable, that um, she can go back to bed until my PA turns up at um, seven o'clock to give me my breakfast and help me with my tablets. For the listener, what would a P- What's a PA? Is that a personal assistant? Yes, yes, yeah. a personal yeah. assistant. And then it's whatever the day holds, really. Yeah. It depends on how Yvette is, how she feels as to whether or not we actually do anything planned. We say we can't plan because we have to take every day as it comes because we never know how much pain Yvette's going to be in, whether or not she will feel like going out or not. The seasons. Uh, The seasons affect her condition because she's got degenerative disc disease in her back, so her mobility is compromised and she's got arthritis in her hips and her knees, so moving around is quite restrictive, particularly when it's wet and cold and windy. You might just sit and watch telly, or you might doze, or you'll be Game. on your laptop gaming. Yeah. It depends, again, it depends on your pain, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I always like to do something to distract me, because if I'm not distracted, then I just feel like, you know, the pain gets a bit unbearable. But we do do things, you know, it's not if it's really bad for me. Yeah. If it isn't, you know, we do like to go out in the car and and stuff and go out bird watching or things like that. You've painted a really vivid picture for our listeners there around what your lives are like on a day-to-day basis. What does it feel like that you have 
that you live your life on that day-to-day basis, what does that actually feel like? Could you just give us some insight into that? It can be very frustrating for you, yeah. for me, because I can't plan. Uh, I'm a planner <laughs> to the nth degree, as Yvette will tell you. Um, so I find it difficult not being able to plan too far ahead, you know, and, and having to change plans at the last minute if we've thought we'll go and do this tomorrow and then Yvette gets up and she can't do it. It also means that there's quite a lot of things I do do in some respects on my own because Yvette's not well enough to come with me. Initially, when I first stopped work, that I found difficult because I've been so used to being busy for such a long time and then having all this time on my hands because there were only certain times that, in some respects, I was needed to assist. Mm. And I suppose in some respects... I didn't actually see myself as a carer because I was just looking after the woman I love. So I wasn't, in that sense, I wasn't a carer in inverted commas. And then I got, the social worker gave me carer's leads details and I started going to their support groups and talking to other carers and listening to other carers and hearing their stories. And eventually started volunteering there and I got involved in supporting LGBTQ carers and and pride and things like that representing carers leads that sounds like quite a big commitment as well given what else has been going on for you for you personally and with your vet as well yeah I mean I wouldn't have been able to do it um I mean this was after I'd had my treatment and I was feeling well again but I wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't have had the PEA in place because I had the peace of mind that there would be somebody taking care of Yvette if I wasn't around yeah it enabled me really to sort of almost find myself again because it gave me a different it gave me a different challenge and a different purpose which I felt at the time I needed and I think that was possibly after the diagnosis because I think you you always take a bit of a a a deep breath and you evaluate where you are in your life Um, and I mean this we're talking nearly 11 years ago now so I'm, I'm sort of touch wood Yes, yeah, yeah, let's hope. Um, so yeah, so that was that was how I sort of dealt with it in some respects. And Yvette was brilliant because she let me do it. She, you know, she wasn't saying, "Well, no, you've got to be with me twenty four hours a day." And um, you know, she said, "No, if you want to go and do it, do what you need to do." And Karen, do you do you describe yourself as a carer? You said you've mentioned there or, or indicated there that you didn't describe yourself as a carer and what does that word mean to yourselves that word carer <laughs> do you want the um hours our interpretation <laughs> which is you know it's basically our carers are, are wonderful people um because they actually do the job that nobody else does and they're there for you the government should be more better towards carers and accept what should recognise what carers actually do because it's more than a full-time job. A full-time job is X amount of hours. Caring is all the time. It doesn't stop. It never ends, really, because although I do get that sort of like respite from the physical side of it because the PA assists, there's that mental support and the emotional support is constant, particularly with somebody like Yvette who has mental health and anxiety issues. 
So when people refer to carers as heroes or angels, what's your reaction to that? I think they, they, they are. You give up your life, your life, to look after somebody. So there's never a break. So, yeah, I think in, in answer to your question, both heroes and angels, we all tend to do it with such yeah, 24/7. grace and without question. And yeah, yeah. Nothing seems to be too much. And I get very frustrated with with the recognition that carers don't receive because I think if we didn't do what we did from the goodness of our own hearts in some respect, we'd probably bankrupt the government, to be honest, yeah. in that respect, because they'd ha- then have to find money f- to pay people to care for everybody. And we all know at the moment what that situation is like in recruiting paid carers. And, and in, in your experience, what support have you been able to access as an unpaid carer? And you talked there about the financial side and the benefit side, but is there anything else that's been going on? And, and again, you talked about um, Leeds carers, but is yeah. there things out there that carers can tap into or look out for? Certainly with finding their local carers, unpaid carers support network, is very important because the amount of support they can give you from, uh, you know, just offering a support group where you can go and get things off your chest or you can ask other for other people's experiences or, or knowledge, you know, being able to direct you to the right people to talk to if you need to get equipment organised for the person you care for, how to get in touch with OTs and social services. And what you're entitled sort of to. Thing, what yeah. you're entitled to. That sort of thing. Certainly, that's most important, I think. And most places, I think everywhere in the country now, has some sort of uh, charity or organisation set up to support family carers and unpaid carers. So I was very lucky that they are so good here and, and that, you know, they supported me through my treatment and then afterwards. Leeds Carers is in the charity space because yeah. my next question is really about how easy is it to access um, services such as the NHS and social care, which are much more in that public sector? Oh, I can see yeah. your faces. I can see <laughs> what the reaction is in your faces there. Well, this is put this way. This day and age, once upon a time, you used to have access to a resource centre. Each disabled person in their own right could go to a resource centre if they wanted to, to get them out and about and encourage them to have a bit of a life, really. And, of course, all that's been knocked on the head, closed down and stuff. So all the information that carers would have got and the support all got closed from that, you know. So then we had other voluntary sectors pick the pieces up. If it wasn't for them, and it's still if it wasn't for them, it would be hard because... If you look for anything these days, the first thing they usually tell you to do is look for a voluntary organisation. Yeah. You know. I mean, we've over the years, the vets needed mental health support. And we've gone through the system. And every time we go into the system, it's changed from the last time we've gone for the system. And we always know that there's going to be a considerable time scale before she'll get any help. Simply because mental health, is so pushed with people needing help. I mean, we lost mum in January and Mm. Yvette's been struggling and needs some help. 
So we looked into bereavement counselling and we we were told cruise and that was was it something like a twelve a minimum of twelve week yeah. waiting list before yeah. you could even talk to anybody. And to be honest, in the end I've just told we've all we've done is we've made the decision that she will see a private psychotherapist with her to get the help that she needs. And I've said, I don't care about the money. We'll find the money somehow. It what is important is your health. But it's difficult when you've been put in that position when I mean, yes, we are very lucky. We do have the NHS and dear God, we'd all be lost without them. But, you know, they're struggling, which means that we're struggling. We could, I could, you know, we could have said, OK, well, we'll wait. You might have to wait a year. You did the last time. You yeah, needed yeah, mental yeah, health and a half. You had to wait a year and a half before you got what you needed. Yeah, and it's not, it's, you need, when you need it, you need it, don't you? You need to be able to access yeah. well, that's it. that's the thing with mental health. You know, you're in a crisis. Yeah. You don't need to be told, well, you will see you in 12 months. When you when you go to the hospital and you say, you know, I'm feeling suicidal or I self-harmed, you know, you'll get assessed and then you have to wait a year and a half to actually get the treatment. I says, well, you don't go in hospital with a, a wound cut a or, broken leg. or a broken <laughs> leg and they send you away after the assessment and say, come back in 12 12 months and we will fix it for you because that's basically what happens with mental health. They just they put you on hold, hoping and praying in that time that you don't do anything silly because you're waiting for the help. We'll return to the podcast in a moment. Are you interested in working with communities to assess need and provide health and care services? At our two-day virtual conference, Community-Led Approaches to Health and Wellbeing, we'll be discussing the impact of person-centred approaches to health and wellbeing and exploring what further action can be taken. We hope to see you there. Book your place via the link in the show notes for this episode. Do you actually feel that your experience is understood and that you're heard when you go through some of these services and some of these experiences? If it's... The voluntary sector, yes, it is hard for them. You know, they've got to put the budgets where they can and stuff and it doesn't help that they don't get the money that they should get and we all understand that. But it would just be nice just to have, well, carers get more money, more recognised because they do a hell of a lot, you know. I mean, they've been, like Cameron said, they've been there for both of us not just for Karen, but also for me. I mean, one of the problems that we've repeatedly come up against, with particularly with reoccurring mental health, is that every time you go back into the system, you start at the bottom again. So you have to go through the, we'll put you into counselling. Well, no, counselling doesn't work. We had this the last time that Yvette needed some help. We knew that she needed to seek a psychotherapist. And it was only, you know, we have, oh, well, you assess, you're assessed. No, you don't fall within this. You need to be assessed here. And we weren't, being you know, we to. weren't being listened to. And until I got, I got fed up, really. And I wrote a, a very long, very in-depth letter to the uh, mental health team. And within about three weeks, you had an assessment. And within about six months after that, I mean, this had been going on for like yeah. 18 12 months, I think, yeah. you were seeing a psychotherapist regularly uh, for 16 or so sessions. Yeah. But those 16, 16 sessions had to deal with so much that, you know, the it's, pressure... Pick one out. <laughs> yeah. 
Seriously, yeah. Pick it out. You've got twelve weeks or whatever, or whatever, and then that we've got to say goodbye. But what happens if it's not helped, or I need more? Well, then you have to go back in the system. You have to re- refer yourself again, and then we'll start again at, you know, and that is that's a, the other benefit of why we decided that we'd do it privately because it means Yvette doesn't have to say, well, I've only got 16 sessions. If I need to be doing this for a year, she needs to be doing it for a year. If from the conversation today there's one thing you'd want people to think about from listening to your experiences, what would that be? Can I start with you, Karen, and then yourself, Yvette? Oof. <laughs> <laughs> Big question. Well, that's a good question. From my from my point of view, you have to ask. Don't expect things to happen for you. And chase. And ch- ask and chase. And don't let people not come back to you. Because I think a lot of times departments think, oh, you get lost. You know, or people think, oh, well, she's making a mountain out of a molehill. We'll leave her a bit and let her calm down. But in actual fact, you're actually fighting for what you need. So don't ever give up in some respects and think that you won't get anywhere. Because I think at the end of the day, if you keep asking and you keep chasing, you will eventually get what you need. There's a lot of people out there who don't know what they need in some respects. Um, and that was one of the questions that used to bug me if you if somebody rang carers leads and I did speak to them about this because their support advice line would say, well, what do you need? Well, I don't know because I don't know what's out there. So, again, it's people need to know what what is out there, you know, and how to access services and how to get the help. So, you know, it, it must be the, the the availability and the promotion of the support for carers. And for the people they care for. That's a really strong message, Karen. I think we, we need to get you and your vet with a placard and start a social movement. <laughs> I can see it happening now. We yeah. could all get together. I mean, it's just such, such important work. Yvette, have you got something you want to say to that point as well? What's the one thing you'd um, want listeners to go away from from to the conversation today? Well, as a disabled person, never give up. People are carers. And people do like to care and don't take people at a disadvantage. And when you get a carer, you know, be nice and civilised to them. You know, it doesn't matter if they do it for free or if they get paid for it. At the end of the day, they've got feelings. You know, you need to respect them. And sometimes carers might not be respected like they should be or been taken for granted and... They do play a massive role in keeping costs down and stuff. And society going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for sharing your story today. The the insights have been fantastic and I know our listeners will get a huge amount from this. But what a beautiful love story <laughs> between you. I mean, it really is. For all of what you've been through and all of the experiences you shared. It's just a fantastic to see the partnership working in the way that it does. And thank you for sharing. Thank you. Thank you. It was really great to get that first person unpaid carer's perspective from Karen and Yvette. Thanks so much again to them. For the last few minutes of this episode, we'll be bringing in Deborah Fenney, a King's Fund consultant who has recently overseen in-depth research into issues facing unpaid carers. 
There's a link to Deborah's report in the episode show notes, and here she is now. Deborah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jo. I'm really pleased to be here. We've just heard from Karen and Yvette a very emotional story explaining their experiences, and there's so much to reflect from their story. But from your perspective, what did you make of it and what stood out for you? I mean, it was it was really powerful, wasn't it? It was it was great to hear them talking in their own words about kind of what the caring relationship means for them. Loads stood out, I think. But but maybe the one to talk about here is how the interview really highlighted some of the diversity among carers. So both who carers are and the kinds of things they do. The 2021 census tells us there's 4.7 million carers in the UK, but caring is is really complex and and. Karen and Yvette's story really highlighted kind of two people caring for each other at different times. It's not just a one-way relationship always. And I think also that the range of support provided, so the kind of practical things like help to get dressed and support with mobilising, but also that kind of emotional support and the deep knowledge that you have that means that you can kind of tell when a person's needs are changing. It really illustrates the, the huge contribution carers can make. So it's estimated that unpaid carers contribute the equivalent of four million paid care workers to the social care system. And we've said in, in some of our work that without them, the system would collapse. And I'm struck by how the wider health and social care challenges have an impact on unpaid carers and cared for people. So there were some examples being drawn out by Karen and Yvette for example, the long wait list for mental health services and social care workforce shortages. Do you have any reflections on this from the research that you've undertaken? Yeah, absolutely. This was something that came through really strongly in our research. Um, So we were talking to unpaid carers, we were talking to commissioners and providers of services in four local authorities in different places in England. And we were asking carers in particular what kinds of support are available locally and what they find most useful. The resounding answer that they told us was was about getting good health and social care support for the person that they care for. But then we also heard how the appointment delays and cancellations they were experiencing were often adding to their responsibilities, adding to the sense of, of stress. And commissioners and providers of support also talked about the impact of cuts to services and insecure funding on what they were able to deliver. It's probably worth saying we came across a lot of examples where local authorities were commissioning their local carers' organisations to provide that support that was available for unpaid carers. But as Sivet and Karen's experience shows, that doesn't always mean better access. The point Karen Yvette made about recruiting social care workers was particularly interesting. This was something that came through in our research. We had one parent caring for an adult son who said they'd had 143 different care workers come into their house over two years and 50 of those just once. And that lack of continuity, the number of new people to meet, but also to kind of train in that person's particular needs, it, I think that really highlights the impact of these things. That's quite a massive, that, that one example there really brings it home to how complex this is and how difficult it must be in a caring or cared for position where you're having so many people just cycle through your life. I just wanted to move us on to really thinking about the role of the charity sector. Karen and Yvette spoke very highly about the role that the charity sector plays within their lives. In the report itself, do we touch on that? Were many people talking about the impact of the charity sector versus the impact of statutory services? Mm. So 
Uh, we recruited in our report, we recruited the carers that we spoke to through the local voluntary sector organisation. So I think perhaps unsurprisingly, they often had really good things to say, but they also said them really sincerely. Like, And it's not just the, the unpaid carer sector. I think in many contexts, we hear how the voluntary and charity sector is a real source of support for people. And we also heard how local authorities are working with their local voluntary carers organisations, both to hear from carers and also to develop services that work for local people. The key thing there is it's not always easy. I mean, there's a history of, uh, and in many cases ongoing, competition for funding between different voluntary organisations, and that can obviously be a barrier to that closer working. Um, One thing that we did hear from commissioners of, of support was compared to other social care commissioners, they have fewer relationships with providers, which means they have more time to develop those relationships. And they said, both that's really useful, but also kind of quite necessary in the context of, of the amount of funding they have to deal with. So they kind of talked about commissioning through influence, building up those relationships with, with their local providers, the voluntary sector, to help build their picture of the overall support offer. And we think there's also a key role here for integrated care systems. So it's early days, but in two of our sites, that kind of wider relationship across health and care and the voluntary organisations were really important to supporting unpaid carers locally. Yeah, so really complex picture there. And I think you found that through you, through the research that you've all been doing um, at the King's Fund. During the episode, Karen raised an interesting point around including carers and people accessing care in the design of services. She's talked about putting the voice of carers and cared for in the centre to help provide value. Did we find any examples in our research where this was being done well? Yes, yeah, such an important point, isn't it? We we did hear a couple of examples where this was being done well, um, and particularly where carers were directly involved in some of the, the wider organisational planning. So like kind of carers' partnerships across different organisations in a system that had direct carer representation on them. Um, carers who'd been involved in that kind of work um, were quite positive about it. And in one area, the work they're doing as part of that local carers partnership was enabling them to embed a carers agenda kind of more widely locally. But I think we also did hear experiences where it didn't go so well and and maybe where uh, carers were represented by an organisation, but not directly and and didn't always feel that their voices were heard. So I think one one of our messages from the report is that it's really important to do that co-production with carers, but also to make sure it's being done meaningfully, making sure that people really are getting their voices heard and that they are hearing back kind of what's happened from being being listened to. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. And I think that's the message for um, design of most public services as well, isn't it? Um, making sure that the, the voice of the citizen and the patient are in the centre. So have you got any reflections overall before we sign off for today? I think the one thing I wanted to say was was I'm really pleased that this has been a podcast that's really centred um, Karen and Yvette's story and kind of people's lived experiences of caring and being cared for. This was one of the guiding principles of our of our research project. We had a patient and public involvement group um, to help design some of our research tools and help us to sense check the findings. We had people with direct and indirect experiences of caring as part of the project team and making sure that we spoke to local unpaid carers in the local areas that we looked at, not just the professionals commissioning and providing services. And I think it's also really important to say that some of those people working professionally in this sector are also carers themselves. So there's there's a huge range of views and experiences that are really vital to hear when you're doing this kind of work. And I hope that our report really reflects that diversity of experiences and, and helps inform improvements in support for carers. Thank you, Deborah. 
That's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much to Karen and Yvette Lewis and to Deborah Fenny for their contributions to this episode. For more on our work in this area, look out for our upcoming report, Caring in a Complex World, Perspectives from Unpaid Carers and the Organisations that Support Them. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our other previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the Kings Fund. The producer for this episode was Emma Sheffield and it has been edited by Bespoken Media. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thanks for listening. We hope you can join us next time.